Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome best-selling author Tony Riches. Specialist in the history of the early Tudors, Tony is best known for his Tudor trilogy. His other international bestsellers include Mary Tudor Princess, Brandon Tudor Knight, and his latest book, Catherine Tudor Duchess. Hi, Tony, and welcome to the show. Hi. Before we talk about your best-selling books and the Tudor period, can you tell us what led you to becoming an author, please? What what you know what what did you do before? Uh, yeah, I, I had various uh, careers. I had a career as a director of the NHS in Wales, and I ran my own consultancy business. And my last full-time work was as director of planning in Cardiff Council. And yeah. I'd always wanted to write, and I started sort of trying different ideas out. But I was born in Pembroke, which is where Henry Tudor was born. And I realised when I started looking into Henry Tudor in a bit more detail that you could be forgiven for visiting Pembroke and not even knowing that he was born there. And also that when I was at school, and this might um, resonate with you, that um, we started with Henry VIII as if there was nothing much really before him and then did his six wives and then we moved on to the Civil War, I think. That yes. We kind of skipped past everything before Henry VIII in terms of the Tudors. And um, we probably skipped over Elizabeth I. I hardly remember much about it. We might have done yeah. a little bit on it. And so I started gathering together material for a book about Henry VII. And I realised that I had enough for at least three books. And I suddenly had, you know, there's... Um, flash of inspiration where I realised that he could be born in the first book, come of age in the second book and become king in the third book. So it just naturally lent itself to a trilogy. And um, that's that's how I really got started successfully writing. And I'm pleased to say that I was able to um, retire 10 years earlier than planned and become a full-time author then. So I now write a book a year and, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm very um, much enjoying that as a, as a way of um, making a living now. Yeah, it must be nice to have an interest um, or a passion such as writing and combine it with, with a, a job as well. Yeah, and the, some of the, the fascinating things are, obviously I've got the time and uh, the space to actually go and visit all the locations. So uh, my wife and I went to the remote chateau in Brittany where Henry Tudor lived in exile and uh, actually stood in the room where he lived and got a real sense of the place, you know, 500 years just evaporated. And uh, not many people have done that, of course, but when you, when you then come to write about it, it's grounded in fact and reality in a way uh, that it might not have been otherwise. And even in my last book about Catherine Willoughby, um, I hardly knew anything about Catherine Willoughby. And I I didn't realise that she knew everyone 
of Henry VIII's six wives. And um, we visited Grimsthorpe Castle and uh, actually stood in the room where she spent her last years. And that was yes. amazing to, to, to feel so close to her after having kind of lived with her for a few years. I bet. Yeah, Gr- Grimsort Castle's about 10 miles from where I live. I mentioned well, earlier that about the, early. So uh, That's right. Well, the, the, the team there were fantastic. They were so helpful. And yeah. um, that, was a, that was a really good example about the, of the value of personally visiting the, um, the locations in books because you get a sense of the geography of the area then, don't you? And um, yes. we went to the chapel at Spilsby, uh, the Willoughby yeah. Chapel, where her tomb is, yeah, and we had the chapel to ourselves. So I wondered originally whether I'd be able to take photographs. Um, we had the run of the place, you know. So well, that that was amazing. Yeah. I bet it was. So obviously, you're you're um, an expert on on the Tudor period, um, and I know for this show we, we've got a limited time. But would you be able just to give us as listen, give the listeners um, a sort of feel for what the Tudor period was? You mentioned earlier about Henry VIII, and I must admit, when I was at school, like I learned about Henry VIII and little yeah. bit Elizabeth I. Yeah. But but that was it. You know, are, are you able to sort of give people? A, a, almost like a summary of, of what the Tudor period was all about, please, Tony. Yeah, very much so. The The story is almost too incredible to be true because um, there's a, a Welsh, young Welshman, Owen Tudor, who becomes a servant to the lonely Queen Catherine of Valois, who's the widow of Henry V. And um, they're in Windsor Castle. And... Basically, it, it suits the the government to keep the the dowager queen out of the way, um, and they're trying to think who they might marry her off to. And Owen falls in love with her, and they run off and um, get married in secret. And it's um, a Welsh bishop, Bishop Morgan, that marries them. And then they yeah. have several children, but the the main two are their sons. Um, Jasper Tudor and Edmund Tudor and Edmund's tomb is not very far from where I live now in St David's Cathedral and uh, he married the 14 year old Margaret Beaufort who was one of the wealthiest heiresses in the country and um, they had a, a child who was Henry Tudor and then yes. this all happens at the same time as the Wars of the Roses. So the uh, the Yorkists managed to uh, put an end to Henry Tudor, uh, to um, Edmund Tudor in Carmarthen Castle. And yeah. Henry, Henry then um, lives with his uncle Jasper in Pembroke Castle, which is close to where I was born, which is where my interest in it comes from. And yeah. eventually... Um, the Yorkists reached West Wales and the only choice that Henry Tudor has is to flee the country with his uncle Jasper and they go to Brittany from Tenby they go through tunnels under the streets to the harbour and um, tunnels? yeah there are actual 
tunnels under the streets. And my wife and I have actually explored these tunnels. They, some people think oh, it's a myth. Oh, they're still open? They're still there, yeah. yeah. There's in oh, the, wow. Tenby's a seaside town and there's a, a Boots the Chemists there, which is yes. um, in the basement of Boots the Chemist is the entrance to the tunnel, which leads to the harbour. And, right. can, and, and is that something that um, obviously you, you need special permission? Or is yeah. it open all the time? Or? Yeah, the manager of, <laughs> no, it's not open all the time. Uh, no. The manager of the chemist at the time um, allowed us, there was like a big sheet of white hardboard blocking the entrance and she just pulled it to one side and I had a torch and you could just see this yeah. tunnel hewn through the rock. And we wow. started walking down it and there was a, a, a Tudor fireplace which still had intact Tudor wine bottles in it. And the only reason that that would be down there is if people were hiding down there for some time, um, hiding from the Yorkists. Anyway, cut a long story short, the most implausible bit is that Henry would manage to raise um, a mercenary army and return back to Pembrokeshire and march through Wales to Bosworth Field and, and challenge the King of England who, of course, was yeah. Richard III. And um, Yorkists would say he was lucky, but his timing was perfect because the country was in the mood for a change and everybody knows what happened was that um, Richard III was not supported um, as, as well as he might have been by the, the noble yeah. families. And we ended up, uh, with Henry as king. Now, nobody was more surprised than Henry, I think, because mm. he'd not really been prepared to be king. And um, it was all a steep learning curve for him. But what he did was he he married Elizabeth of York, which then united uh, the Yorkists and the Lancastrians. And... This has been misrepresented in all sorts of ways, um, but essentially the facts are that um, it brought an end to the Wars of the Roses, and everything. That so it was a, a sort of um, yeah, it was a it, it was a tactical marriage, was it? Well, um, all marriages were tactical at that level at the time. Okay. Very few people, well, very few people got married without thinking about the political and um, financial implications of it, particularly if you were the king. Um, However, I'm convinced that they did love each other and um, their son, um, Arthur, was going to be the new King Arthur, you see. And uh, so that that was all planned very well. And um, he had two daughters, um, Margaret and Mary, and another little son called Henry. And Henry was destined for the church because that's what you did if you weren't going to inherit. Yeah, so yeah. He, he would have been a, a famous bishop. And then what happened was that um, Henry VII formed a, a very strategic alliance with Spain, which meant that we ended up then with a... Catherine of Aragon coming across as Arthur's queen. Yeah. And then they both were struck down by a thing which which is which certainly resonates with us now called the sweating sickness which 
which took people, regardless of, of any other consideration, it took the rich and the poor alike, and they broke into a fever, and the doctors at the time were completely at a loss what to do. And Catherine survived, only just, um, but of yeah. course Arthur died, and suddenly um, Henry is is um, thrown into the line of succession as the future king. Once again, there's a theme here is that each time they're not really at all well prepared for it. Yeah. And um, because because of what had happened, Henry VII kept his son Henry in isolation. He almost locked him away. He forbid him from doing anything dangerous like jousting or going out with girls or whatever, just left him to his studies and almost yeah. under lock and key. And then, of course, when Henry VII fell ill and died, um, Henry VIII uh, was suddenly not only king, but he was free to do all the things he'd, he'd been banned from doing. Yeah. How old was um, he when he became king? He, he was about, um, gosh, I think he was about 18 uh, I don't. I don't write about Henry VIII, by the way. Just oh, I should don't. say that what <laughs> I, I think enough has been said about Henry VIII. So what I do yeah. is I write about everybody around him. Yes. So that each of my books gives you another facet of him. Yeah. Um, yeah. A different perspective. So, for example, I've written about his sister Mary Tudor, who became he married her after the uh, ailing King of France, King Louis of France who died after a few months of the marriage. Um, so we see Henry VIII through Mary's eyes rather than um, talking about him directly. And then uh, Mary Tudor marries Charles Brandon, who is Henry VIII's best friend and has been since yep. he was a boy. So we see Henry through the eyes of that friendship then. And... Um, that's that's the way I've continued to write ever since because um, Catherine Willoughby, um, some historians have said that she could have been the seventh wife because uh, when Charles Brandon, when Mary died, Charles Brandon married Catherine Willoughby, who was yeah. his ward, his 14-year-old ward, which was tricky to write about because I didn't want to... Um, people reading it for the wrong reasons. But there was nothing unusual in that at the time. And um, so when Charles Brandon died, um, it, it would have been perfectly reasonable for uh, Henry VIII to have taken an interest in it, except for one thing, that he was married to Catherine Parr, who was Catherine yeah. Willoughby's best friend. Right. So um, the way I've I've followed the story through is right from its inception with um, Owen Tudor's first meeting with, with Catherine of Valois, right through to the death of Elizabeth I. So where I am at the moment is I'm working my way around Elizabeth's court, looking yes. at um, all of the key players in Elizabeth's court and how they perceived Elizabeth. So yeah. when I've finished the last book of my Elizabethan series, I will have a continuous thread. They all, they all link together, you see. So I'll yes. have a continuous thread which goes from Owen Tudor right through to the end of Elizabeth's reign. And yeah. um, 
It started almost by accident, but it works very well because the feedback from readers is that they enjoy um, the space that I've got to, to introduce somebody probably as a child in one book. And then you, when you follow their story in the next book, they're growing up and they eventually grow old and eventually die, of course. But yeah. um, it's spread over several books. I think that um, having listened to your podcasts and extracts from the audiobooks, I think it's a great – somebody like me who obviously had a limited schooling, shall we say, of, of the, the period, it's a great way to actually – um, learn a lot more about the period, but in, in a way that, you know, you're, you're reading a book, you're hearing about what people did, their feelings, and everything else. I think it's a great way of learning more. There's an interesting debate in, in the historical fiction world because um, some people like to do the alternative version. So they have a, a book about Richard III winning at Bosworth and things like that, which is fine. Yeah. But um, my approach is to faithfully dig out um, the known facts. And that's that's sometimes almost an impossibility when I talk about known facts. I mean, um, I rely on primary sources as much as I can. A lot of those are written in medieval French and things like that. So I have to rely on translations. I can't sp- even speak Latin myself, but um, I, I get it translated. Yeah, And, of course, as like I said, visiting the actual locations. But what you always end up with is two things. One is um, conflicting perspectives where some people say that um, Margaret Beaufort was scheming and, um, up, you know, s- simply s- serving her own ends and others say that she um, was quite the opposite. So I, yeah. I try to find a, a middle ground, which is... Um, the, the reasonable approach, but then you end up with gaps because there are always massive gaps in the historical record where you might have a letter that's written and then 10 years pass before the next surviving letter. And um, if I was a historian, I actually read it in the, in the books. It says 10 years passed then. And it, as a reader, it makes you think what on earth happened in that last 10 years, you know? And, and when you research the the uh, the characters that that sort of are in the no, in the novels, um, do you find that your opinion of them changes as you find out more about them? I mean, you, you presumably come to them with an opinion, and then once oh, you definitely. Research, I that mean, change? Um, the, the, the one of the most um, telling examples that I've I've just received back from my editor my book. Uh, the first book of the Elizabethan series, which is about a chap called Francis Drake. And yeah. virtually everything that I thought I knew about him was wrong. Uh, <laughs> so, like, he didn't, he did actually play bowls, but he wasn't playing bowls when the Spanish Armada um, came into sight or anything like that. And he? He, he did trade in slaves, but he also freed slaves. And his best friend was a former slave who saved yeah. his life on more than one occasion. And yeah. Um, I just really enjoy going beyond um, what most people know about a person and finding out that he was married twice, for example, the first time to a local girl from Plymouth. Um, And then, of course, he he became one of the richest men in the country. And um, after her days, he married a wealthy heiress and 
neither marriages were great, for, but for the opposite reasons. And it was quite fun to explore that because um, the difference between the local girl that could hardly understand why he would possibly be meeting the Queen of England through to somebody that took that completely for granted but couldn't understand why he still wanted to spend time with the ordinary sailors, you know? Yeah. And um, so in every case, in every book that I've written, uh, particularly with Henry VII, I had this picture in my mind of a fairly miserly character, which is how most people understand him to be, when in fact he, he was wildly extravagant with his clothes and things like that, and he really enjoyed gambling and lost a fortune gambling at cards and things, which doesn't fit at all with the miserly view no. of him. No. And and have you ever, apart from, from uh, one or two things that you've discovered about people, have you ever um, come across any facts where, you know, because you've done the research, they're, they're facts that you've found and nobody else has? Unique, unique facts? It, that's really interesting because, I, I, you know, following Henry... Tudor on exile in Brittany, um, I realised then how thin the um, the research has been about his time at the um, chateau in the forest, and yeah. uh, that almost nothing really appears in the books about it. But when you go there, the local people have got a lot of um, documented evidence about his time there and the fact. Uh, that he met a local girl and lived with her for a while and things like that, uh, yeah. which really doesn't appear in any of the biographies. So I find that intriguing. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not a historian, but um, I include all those sort of details in my books as legitimately um, verifiable as far as it's possible to do so. Yes. On onto your books, the, the Tudor trilogies is the sort of one that you're known for. Um, where should people obviously people start at the first book I guess but but uh, have you done books before that yes people yeah. might give some background to the, it the very first book um, there's a I don't know whether you've heard of it but there's a, a concept called agile project management uh, which is was at the time a very fresh approach to project management which was very much about um, how people might work in teams on a project very effective. Oh, in, in, in corporate day, uh, yeah. in corporate world. In the corporate oh, right. world, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll give the very short version that I was responsible for the pedestrianization of a major street in Cardiff. And right. um, I wasn't the project manager of it, but the project manager of it suddenly fell ill and I ended up picking up the pieces. And so I applied this, what was then, um, it, it had grown from the computer programming, computer program development, world and it was one of the first times it had been used in local authorities for um, changing a cityscape and I wrote a, yes. a short ebook about it which became a, an immediate bestseller in the US and oh, I was wow. just absolutely um, bewildered by that but uh, that's the way it worked at the time this is 10 years ago okay. now yeah so that inspired me then to um, have a go at historical fiction so I wrote, uh, a book called Queen Sacrifice, which um, the history of Wales was very much the, the kings of the north fighting the kings of the south and yes. the Saxon influence against the old, um, the Druid religion around the Anglesey area. 
So I realized that I could take a, a famous chess game, which is... I was going to say, Queen sacrifices in chess, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the, the game yeah. of the century is a famous chess game. And what I did was I had the 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 northern king as the, the black king and yeah. the, the southern king as the white king. And then every single move in the game f- gave me the narrative of the book. So I faithfully oh, yeah. followed the narrative. It was a very ambitious job at the time. So you yeah. ended up with things like a, in the game, a, a queen takes a pawn. So I had to come yeah. up with a plausible um, narrative where where the, the white queen would take a black pawn uh, you know, be responsible for his death. In other words, yeah. And that's how that's that's how I learnt about um, structuring a novel. Because uh, although that never made it to the bestseller lists, um, straight on the back of that, I wrote um, Owen, book one of the Tudor trilogy, which I'm pleased to say went straight to number one in the US and the UK and several other countries. Wow. And um, was was. Um, fantastic i mean it's it's so much harder to do that these days because at the time uh, there weren't 100,000 people uploading books to amazon um every day like there is now so 100,000 i don't know how many now there's hundreds of thousands <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. because it's so easy to do it takes about 5 minutes yeah. to do um yeah. i've also um been published by commercial publishers and um what I've found, I've got three books, one of which is Queen Sacrifice, which are commercially published. But what I find is that I set up my own publishing company, um, Priscelli Press. The view from my house is of the Priscelli Hills. Yeah. And um, what that means is I get 70% royalties and I got complete control. So with yeah. commercial publishers, they basically tell you what the cover's going to look like um, and all sorts of how it's going to be advertised, when it's released, Everything is up to the publisher, but as an independent um, publisher, everything is up to me. And the best yeah. thing is that, uh, apart from getting seventy percent royalties, I really enjoy having complete control. So um, I've still kept those three books with the commercial publisher, but uh, the Elizabethan series is all through Priscelli Press, and that means yeah. that. I can pop in and put updates in the back of the books at any time. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. And I also um, stumbled across two other things, which is that um, I could f- form partnerships with audiobook narrators where in return for a profit share deal, um, I could have an audiobook made of any of my books at no cost. So all of my books are also... Uh, all my Tudor books are also audio books. And do you find that the the audio, you know, the actual um, production of an audio book helps the sales? Absolutely, of, of the, um, yeah. Digital, yeah. Some people um, have only got time to listen to an audio book. Uh, some yeah. people have got eyesight problems. There's all sorts of reasons why people like yes. audio books, and some people listen to one of my audio books and then um, move on to buy all of the. The, the paper copies. So yeah. I really recently listened, one of my um, heroes is C.J. Sansom and the Shard Lake series. I don't know if you've heard of that, but... I, I've heard it. I have heard of it, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd, I've been reading the books as um, hardback books and yes. I decided I'd try the next one as an audio book and I really struggled. It's nine hours, nine hours of listening. 
Yeah. I struggle to visualize it in the same way. So I'm somebody that very much prefers to have a, a paper book than an audio yes. book. Yeah, um, I, I commuted for a long time to Coventry from where I live. So it's a good use of time. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it's a good use of time. I, I did Chant. Have you read Chantaram? No. No, it's a good one. Um, but it's about 34 hours long. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know how thick the book would be. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something that's fascinating, though, is that um, there's there's an actress called Ruth Redman who uh, narrates the books which are female characters. So um, I find it absolutely mind-boggling when um, I turn on my computer and she sends me the um, the the first copy for approval to hear my own characters talking, oh, really? um, <laughs> to hear their voices. Yeah. And I think, did I write? Did I write that? You know, <laughs> because yeah. she adds. The, a good narrator will add a whole other dimension to the words yes, with I her think. intonation yeah. and her pauses and yeah. uh, the way that she deals with the male characters is just um, a whole other thing. The yeah. other thing I've been doing is having my books translated into foreign languages. So um, yeah. I've got translators working on the Tudor trilogy. Um, it's available in Spanish and Portuguese and uh, they're translating it into Italian and German. And that's yeah. quite fascinating because there's a whole other world out there of people that um, didn't know anything about the Tudors um, that are yeah. relying on my books as yeah. their primary source of information, I think, which is yeah, I quite fascinating. Do you get a lot of interest from America? Biggest market. Um, I it? don't know. <laughs> Perhaps you could explain why, but... Uh, my biggest readership is middle-aged American ladies. So um, several times I've done um, author chats with groups in America over Skype yeah. or um, FaceTime or whatever. And invariably I've got a room full of, a room for they're all over America. Uh, to me, in my mind, they're in a room. <laughs> uh, yeah. And my wife said they all sound the same. <laughs> You know, and I say to them, have you ever been to Windsor Castle? And they all laugh because that's like saying, have you ever been to Mars? To yeah, some of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that's quite interesting that there's a yeah. this massive market out there. But yeah. um, it, my books sell in 13 countries over Amazon. So I literally do have readers all over the globe. And I, I run a, a book giveaway. And I was hoping, because I have to post the books to the winners, I was hoping yeah. that they were both going to be in Wales would be good, but the, <laughs> the UK would be helpful. One was in Alaska, yeah. and I looked it oh. up, and it was in the most remote backwards of Alaska. And wow. the other one was in the Australian bush. So oh, right. Like, um, both, <laughs> one extreme to the other. <laughs> yeah, both books have, have reached, their, uh, reached the winners. Yeah. but. I just find that intriguing that the world is yeah. a shrinking place, you know, and particularly so now. Yeah. The, the latest book was um, Catherine, Julia yes. Duchess. And that came out last year, was it? Yes. And that's, that's um, way exceeded my expectations because it was a little bit of a gamble because I'd, I'd hardly heard of Catherine Willoughby. And no. uh, I wondered whether people would be really interested in her story. Uh, but it's such an intriguing story because she's the wealthiest heiress in the country. And yeah. then she becomes the ward of this um, best friend of Henry VIII, Charles Brandon, 
who most people know from the television with um, his portrayal in various things. But the real Charles Brandon is quite a fascinating character. And then um, Mary Tudor, uh, this is the Catholic Mary Tudor, comes to the throne. And all of a sudden, um, Catherine's life, her very she, she could be thrown in the tower because she was a, a Protestant. And so she flees the country with her small child and um, has to like, live in exile. And that whole story is just fascinating because... I bet it is. Yeah. Uh, she was named after um, Catherine of Aragon, by the way, uh, oh. because her mother was Maria de Salinas, who was Catherine of Aragon's 15-year-old companion who, who came yes. with her from Spain. Oh, right. So... Um, and then Maria de Salinas married Willoughby, who was one of the nobles of Henry's court, and they got given um, Grimsthorpe Castle as a wedding present. So that's the whole story is quite fascinating. But there's so many little things, like how Catherine might have felt about being uh, suddenly finding herself Duchess of Suffolk and married to a man yeah. who was... Um, old enough, nearly old enough to be a grandfather, you know. And when I visited um, Grimsthorpe, in the corridor outside Catherine's room, there are two portraits on the wall, one of Charles Brandon and yep. uh, one of Catherine. And you, the, the age difference is quite stark. You, it really yep. brings it into focus. You know, there's this old man with a white beard and then there's this really quite um, young woman at the yep. side of him. And you realise then uh, it must have been quite a challenge for her. But she had no say in it, of course. No, no. And that went on quite a lot, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of next books, what what have you got coming up, uh, yeah, well, Tony? The, I'm working my way around the Tudor court and I keep changing my mind of Elizabeth I, by the way. Yeah. I keep changing my mind about the order of who it's going to be because I had some people that I definitely wanted to, to cover and Drake was one of the first, but also Walter Raleigh is a fascinating character. And yeah. I've I've spent a couple of years researching both of them. And um, then part of, when I was writing uh, Drake, this guy, uh, the Essex, Robert Devereux, comes galloping down to Plymouth and um, steals one of Drake's ships and sails off to Cadiz. And I thought, what the heck is going on here, you know? And it turns out that um, Robert Devereux, who's the Queen's favourite, and um, he's the, um, his stepfather is is Robert Dudley. Yeah. Um, He'd asked the Queen whether he could sail with Drake, and she said, absolutely not, you know, don't even dare think about it. So his response was to jump on a horse and, and charge to Plymouth and steal a ship. And uh, I was just so intrigued by this. I started looking into his story, and yeah. that's the book that I'm writing now, which is um, oh, right. the second book in the series. And, of course, it, it overlaps with Drake, but it yeah. also has people in it, like William Cecil, who was a best friend of Catherine Willoughby as a younger man, and could have married her if he wasn't already married. Yeah. Um, he he is now an old man who is effectively Devereux's um, sponsor after his, his father died in Ireland. And um, there's, there's this sort of thread that runs like a golden thread that runs through the whole 
thing where each book is linked to at least one or more other books. Yes. And um, I quite enjoy that because it means that uh, I've got a depth of knowledge about these people going back to when they were children, um, which most people wouldn't have, I suppose. And no. uh, the research that I do, um, I've got obviously a wealth of, of biographies and history books and stuff like that. But um, the research that I've been doing about Elizabethan London, for example, um, applies is going to apply in all of the books in different yes. ways. So yeah. that that works very well for me. Yeah, yeah. You've got you've got that um, sort of bank of subject matter. Absolutely. That you can draw on. But yeah. I do. I try to come at it fresh. So um, yeah. I recently did a, a series of podcasts about the wives of Henry VIII, and I decided to approach each one from a research point of view completely fresh and yeah. and to set aside everything I knew about each of the wives and to look at them from a new perspective, uh, particularly from their letters and anything like that. So that was quite interesting yeah. to do as an exercise. So, so in terms of Henry VIII and his wives, with, with the research you did, who do you think was his favourite? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at different times, each of them was because, as a as a little boy, um, he was in awe of Catherine of Aragon, uh, yeah. and the idea that he could marry her um, appealed to him. So he was very proud to marry Catherine of Aragon. Uh, people give the impression that they weren't married for very long, but they were married for seventeen years or something like that. Oh, right. And so yeah. it's a long time that he was with her. So. Um, I think he would have always had uh, a special place in, in his uh, for her. But personally, I think the answer to your question is Catherine Parr, um, she's kind of dismissed as that she just nursed, nursed him in his old age, but there was much more to it than that. And yeah. um, th they, they shared a lot of interests and uh, what, wasn't there there wasn't there the um the burden of having to produce an heir which had always been there with the other wives yeah and um it's i find it hard to believe that um he really felt the same about somebody like Catherine Howard yeah because it was quite a short-lived business and um you know even Anne Boleyn so much has been said and written about Anne Boleyn but um they in some ways, they were almost too alike because they they just they clashed quite often, really, yeah. and uh, so the, the whole thing is quite intriguing, and I I find it fascinating to see Henry through their eyes. Do you see what I mean? Is is I, I do, yeah, yeah. How, for example, Catherine Parr. There's a I really enjoyed writing the scene in um, in the in my last published book, which was Catherine Tudor Duchess, where for the first time, she finds herself alone with Henry VIII. Uh, yeah. so how that might have gone, you know, <laughs> uh, where he dismisses all these courtiers and they're just suddenly alone together in his um, chambers. Yeah. And that was, that was quite uh, fun to write, quite honestly. I bet it was. Yeah. And I've actually been in those, obviously, uh, as, wherever it's possible to visit. Uh, I've been in the actual rooms where we can. So I got yeah. a good feel for what it was like, and 
So that's all reflected in the books as well. I guess when when you do this research and you go to the various places around the country and, and around you know Europe or whatever, um, it's almost like a mini holiday at the same time. Absolutely. And it's all <laughs> chargeable as expenses as well, Absolutely. which is one of the yeah. benefits of being a full-time author. Yeah. And just on, on the subject of being an author, um, I know many listeners, I know I certainly have, but a lot of people have always had this ambition to to write a book, um, but many of us never get around to it. What would you say to those people? I'd say there's never been a better time to do it. And the reason is uh, that when I started out, I happened to be um, quite, quite skilled at writing um, code. And so I could um, code an ebook in HTML. And yeah. that means so that there was an index and all the headings were right. And if there was any pictures, they were in the right places. It used to take me months to do. And now there's software called Vellum where you import a Word document, click on produce ebook, and you can view it in on a Kindle device within five minutes. And wow. I still find that like a, some kind of magic trick, you know? Yeah. And um, it's it does such a lovely job of it as well. And uh, the it also produces a print-ready version as a PDF, which you can just upload to Amazon. So what I say to people is to consider what I do, which is that I... I set myself a target of writing 500 words a day, every day. and yeah. um, 365 days a year. Yeah. And wow. uh, it becomes a habit, like anything else. I mean, uh, that's how I make my living, but it does become a habit that yeah. um, I, I tend to wake early with my head buzzing with ideas and quickly write them down and find I've already got 300 words down, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then I might spend the rest of the day researching and write the other 200 Sometimes I write one and a half thousand words in a day, and um, but I still carry on because uh, what I normally try and write is uh, twenty-five chapters, roughly of about four thousand words each, to arrive at a hundred thousand words for editing, and then yeah. that normally gets edited down to eighty or ninety thousand words. Yes, yeah. because it's surprising how many how many words an editor will happily cut out. Yeah, uh, I, I do recommend getting a, a professional editor because that additional viewpoint on your work makes all the difference, I think. They yes. spot things that, um, as an author, you might never spot because you're too close to it. So are you are you in touch with your editor as you're writing or, or no. do, you, do you speak to them? It's at the end of the process. The, the process is that I normally, this year has been unusual because I've been writing during lockdown, but... Normally yeah. what I do is um, I sail and go out on motorbikes and stuff in the summer and then I start writing in the autumn. Um, yeah. Once the boat's in the boatyard, I start writing and then I try to get the book off to my editor by June and yeah. then the cycle starts again and I publish before Christmas normally. Um, yeah. And that, that's worked well. Uh, so this year I ha- I'm going to end up having written two books thanks to the lockdown uh, because um, it seemed to be the best way to use the time, really. Yeah. And do, do you, obviously you do the research, but do, do you plan the book totally beforehand? Or, no. Or does it develop as you travel? No, it, it, I don't think you could. I think you'd have to leave a bit of space. So some chapters have just got a one-sentence description 
like uh, a memorable one in in Drake is the Spanish Armada is sighted. <laughs> yeah. And that's a whole chapter. And um, basically what I then have to do is immerse myself in what really happened when the Spanish Armada was sighted. And yes. I learned so much that I didn't know that we had a handful of men on the Isle of Wight pretending to make it look well defended. And the Spanish Armada believed us and... Um, it's a bit like uh, the Battle of Britain. You know, the Germans thought we had much more planes than we really did. And yeah. uh, we were we were kind of um, uh, putting on a brave front. And yeah. so they never, they didn't take the Isle of Wight. If they'd have taken the Isle of Wight, we could all be speaking Spanish now. Yeah, I, I never knew that about the Isle of Wight. No, these are the sort of things that I just yeah. discovered. And yeah. um, th- that uh, Drake obviously did know the truth and believed that we were all done for because the Isle of Wight would be occupied by the Spanish and would become their base. And from there, they'd be able to launch attacks on Southampton and Portsmouth and even Plymouth whenever they wanted to. I also didn't realise that that Drake led an English armada against the Spanish. I, I wasn't taught that at school. No, no. And so, um, you know, he went happily sailing off to get our own back into Cadiz and... Um, the whole fleet was there um, being re- repaired after the what what got back after the Armada, because I was also given the impression that almost no ships made it back to Spain, which isn't true at all. Yeah. And um, he, he happily set about um, burning and sinking all the ships in Cadiz uh, whilst being bombarded by the shore battery. So <laughs> it's just an amazing, it makes a fantastic film, I think. Yeah, so any any yeah. screenwriters there listening, um, that would be spectacular, wouldn't it? It uh, would be, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Actually, Tony was: Have you? Um, you're obviously doing the audio books, but have have you? You know, is, are there any plans to televise or film? Oh, do you know? Or, it's, it's such a such a shame. I have to be careful what I say, but um, this company called Stars uh, uh, basically did a sort of fairly low budget version of the stories. And they did yeah. some outrageous things, like they they merged Mary um, Tudor, Queen of France, with her sister Margaret. Surely, I, I still can't understand. Could they not get two actresses? You know, so they merged them. So anybody watching that that's trying to learn would get hopelessly confused yeah. because they had yeah. such different lives. You know, one became yeah. Queen of France, one became Queen of Scotland, and yeah. um, to to merge them is is outrageous. So I. Mm. Quite often, I end up shouting at the telly and turning it off. But even the the famous series, The Tudors, um, was so full of uh, compromises that they'd done for um, television effect. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. Charles Brandon is is completely rewritten as a, a completely different kind of person, yeah. and uh, the religious dimension almost disappears completely when it was such a big deal. Yeah. Um, so I think to try and to try and get the story put right would be a fantastic thing to do. But yeah. um, I know what what any production companies would say, particularly in the current climate, is that it's kind of been done. We need something fresh. But your books obviously have have a lot of fresh stuff in them that haven't yeah. been told. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And um, so, if, like you say, if anybody's listening, um, yeah, read Tony's books, and, and they <laughs> they are. Each is written to be standalone. So lots of people have yeah. told me that they've started off 
with Henry's story, for example, and then worked backwards and found it worked perfectly well because they quite liked knowing what was going to happen, you know? Yeah. Um, I would say the best way is to start off at the beginning of the story where Owen Tudor first meets Catherine of Valois. Otherwise, it's quite hard to understand why Henry VIII turned out quite as he did. Yeah. But once you know that he was never supposed to be king and that he was destined for a life in the church and that he was locked away and not allowed to even joust, but Charles Brandon used to sneakily give him some jousting lessons, um, that gives you a different view of his of his life, doesn't it? Yeah, and his character. Yeah, yeah, very much yeah, so. Yeah. So um, you've got your novels. Um, you've got your website, which also incorporates a blog, but also, also to, to where you actually interview other writers, I noticed. Yeah, well that, what I've got is I've got my website, which is tonyriches.com, but I've also yeah. got a blog called The Writing Desk. And um, I quite enjoy that because that's where I write about my research visits. So the whole of my following in the footsteps of the Tudors to Brittany and back um, was spread over several months' worth of blog posts. I think there's a dozen yeah. or so of them. But also I've enjoyed um, doing specific blog posts about um, other writers. Uh, so the, the writer's habits, I've got a whole series of those. So that's been quite fun. Like Thomas Hardy, I went and visited Thomas Hardy's cottage and um, his house and everything. He's one of my favourite authors too. Well, and mine. There you are, really? we share that. Have you yeah. have you been to his cottage? I haven't. I no, recommend I haven't read- it. It's National oh, right. Trust and it's, it's just fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. Um, in his bedroom, there's a an authentic uh, rug by the side of his bed, which um, is, you know, of this, of his time, the sort of rug that yeah. he would have put his feet on when he got out of bed. And that was made by my mum. So that's my... Oh, really? That's my contact with <laughs> <laughs> No, she lives in Dorset, not far from Hardy's Cottage. You yeah, see. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. But, um, and so what's, what's downtime for you when you're not writing? Well, normally I love to go sailing. So we've... Thanks to Owen, we've got a beautiful yacht on the river, yeah. Clethai, and um, we went down to see it yesterday. It's in the boatyard and started up the engine. It's quite sad, really, that this is the first time that I can remember that we've not been sailing. Yeah. Um, got a smaller boat on the drive, which, which we're hoping to go out in next week. Um, yeah. And also... I used to do a lot of kayaking because um, in Pembrokeshire we've got hundreds of miles of really nice coastline for kayaking around as well as oh, the right. river. Yeah. And um, Is that two-person kayaking or single? So I've got a, a sea kayak and my wife's got a sit-on kayak, so yeah. she likes the, the idea of it being unsinkable. Uh, <laughs> but I also like motorbikes, so um, we, we live 20 minutes from Tenby, so... The other day we popped down to Tenby on the motorbike, which is a nice little trip. And, um, yeah. you know, so that's that's what I would normally be doing this time of year, not writing. Um, and and as I've already said, uh, I would have been down in Plymouth visiting uh, all Drake's places now. Instead of that, I've had to do it using um, Google Earth and things like that. Yeah, not quite the same. Not the same but, at all. But still health. <laughs> but interestingly, you, you can actually go to the chapel where Drake got married and it's yeah. still there, and you can stand on the very spot. And things like that, I just find this yeah. so compelling. Fantastic. Uh, because you just feel that you literally are standing in their footsteps then. Yeah. 
So where can people find out more about your work, Tony? And where, where can they get your books? Yeah, if you just Google Tony Riches, that sounds a bit of a, a bit of a claim. But if you Google Tony Riches, it should come up. Um, yeah. Apart from the ones which are commercially published, all the Tudor books are exclusive to Amazon. And yes. um, that's, that's a partnership because Amazon promote them for me. So I don't have to do so much promotional work then. Yeah. That's the the benefit of exclusivity. There's obviously a downside, but that's the benefit of it. Yeah. Well, we put all that on the show notes. Yeah, and and everything's everything is on my website, which is www.tonyriches.com, yeah. and including my email. So I, I I enjoy hearing from readers. They ask me sometimes they surprise me. Uh, Somebody told me, some, somebody in America told me that their son was relying on my books for all of his history classes and was doing oh, very really? well out of it. <laughs> He's doing very well out of it. So, yeah. so that's, you know, suddenly that's, I that's find nice. I've got this, this new responsibility to be factually yeah. correct with everything. Yeah. Well, Tony, um, thanks ever so much for coming on. It's been a fantastic conversation and thank you for being a guest. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Let's go to today's guest, Tony Riches, best-selling author and specialist in the history of the early Tudors. I found this conversation with Tony fascinating. It was interesting to discover how much research and fact-finding he undertakes. So I think that his books, as well as providing a great read, also give an opportunity to learn more about the Tudor period. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I would be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best.